We will continue in the Gospel of John in chapter 17. And last week, Pastor Jason provided us an introduction with the use of the first five verses. Today, we will still be looking at those first five verses into which we will conclude the prologue here of the Master's Priestly Prayer. And consider now, this will still be an introduction of parts, but in contrast or in addition, better yet, to what Pastor Jason brought up last week in regards to the facets that Christ, the Son of God, truly, truly must be fully God and fully man in order to reconcile man and God. Yet again, we will see the facets of how he does so. And his prayer actually provides concrete propositions to understand this. In Gospel of John, chapter 17, by verses 1 through 5, it states, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Amen. Let's now go to the Lord our God in prayer. Father, we do thank you on this Sabbath day that you've given us, Lord. And we are mindful that you have given your son as a sacrifice on our behalf to bridge the gap between man and God. And of this, Lord, where our parents, our foreparents, Adam and Eve, broke this bridge. Again, Lord, we thank you that you brought your son to bring this back so that the church, past, present, and future, can communicate with you in the name of your son, knowing full and well that indeed you cared for your people. In Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Now, again, <clears throat> today our focus will shift to the second part of this process of an introduction into the Master's highly priestly prayer. And from where Pastor Jason highlighted the significance of the God-man, emphasizing the role of the mediator, this office, which was symbolized that Christ carried the, I'm sorry, that Jesus carried the title of Christ, the mediator. The meaning of Christ signifies that he was indeed the chosen one. But today, and where we're going to put or shift our virtue and dive deeper, we just want to explore how he provided the aspects of this office. And it's in three particular roles of prophet, of priest, and of king. Now, by introduction to this particular sermon, we're actually going to look at verse 1 so that it allows a segue to verses 2 through 5. And it's noteworthy when you look at what John includes. He states, when Jesus has spoken these words, he shows that Jesus concluded his prior discourse with the disciples in the transition 
is therefore set. In fact, before secluding himself in regards to making this prayer, he provides consolation and reassurance to his disciples. As John 16.33 states, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. In the next clause of verse 1 in John 17, John observes that the Messiah lifted up his eyes to heaven, suggesting that there is a profound reverence that God the Son has for God the Father. Now, the master's act of looking up to pray should not be construed as establishing one singular mode for prayer. The parable of the tax collector in the Pharisee in Luke 18, 9-17 teaches us that diverse postures in prayer can be acceptable. You see, in that parable, it was evident that the tax collector bowed his head and the master deemed it as proper or appropriate. And therefore... The implicit understanding from both the parable and the master's action here is that the mode of prayer is secondary to the reverence and the sincerity of the supplication that's being made. Now, with God the Son taking to the posture in which reverence is due, he begins calling out to God the Father to indicate his desire and fervor that the Son of God be glorious in which him coming in the body of man, he be glorious in the death because what is going to be manifested and that is the resurrection, it will show that the spiritual kingdom is going to be revealed to the church. The master states, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the Son may glorify you. Ponder on this statement some more. Can you see how it is consistent with the message that the Master has given to his creation and his earthly duties, and that though the audience varied, some with different characteristics, some in appearance, some in intellect, some in stature, and lastly, in relation to the church, the master's message was still consistent in what it held. The father and the son are indeed one. If we elaborate on this aspect, and this last portion that I brought up of the audience, in the fact that they had various relations to the church, it's going to be particularly significant because when we later progress through the prayer, through various sermons and expositions, you're going to see how the supplications being made with the audience in mind. Now, the audience that we were exhibited to in the Gospel of John, again, varied in different aspects. But the way I'm going to show how they varied, I'm going to align it with our understanding of the confession. In particular, chapter 25 of the Westminster Confession Standards. Now, I'm not going to read chapter 25 because I did not leave time for that. <laughs> In a different time and age, in a Puritan uh, mindset, they probably would have read the whole chapter <laughs> and then get to the sermon. But 
Nonetheless, the perspective of the differences in the audience are viewed as such. We've seen those who the master spoke with who resided outside of the church universal. It's evident. Do you remember his discourse with a Samaritan woman? In the passage, John 4, 21 to 24, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the people, for such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him, him in spirit and in truth. We have an audience of those who resided in the church universal. To the Jews who were inhabiting Israel. I bring your attention now as the passage reads in John 6, 41 to 46. The Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, who father and mother we know? How does he say now I have come down out of heaven? But note the master's statement. Do not grumble among yourselves. No one could come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him on the last day. It is written in the prophets. He's even turning. See, again, the context of the audience. He's even turning to what they had been taught from the time of their birth. It has been written in the prophets. Uh, sorry. And they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. We also have the nomadic Jews. Again, still those who reside in the church universal. And these Jews, for diverse reasons, were found to be nomads from the way of Israel. And yet we witness in John 12 how the certain Greeks expressing their desire to worship at the feast, come to note the master's message. I bring to you John 12, 26, and with some portions and details of verses 44 through 50. The master states, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, the father will honor him. Again, by verses 44, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep him, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak of my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So now we're seeing this aspect in this transition 
from those who reside outside the church to those who reside inside the church. But then I bring you to this last portion and group and audience. Those who reside within the church. But as we understand, especially as our confession makes proper, the church universal, but also invisible. It's invisible to us because we do not know the intent in the heart of man. But the master, and again, Jason brought up very well. The master being fully God and fully man knew the intent and the hearts of men. Now note how his speech shifts to those who he knows are his own. I bring to you John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and disclose myself to him. Continuing at verse 23. If anyone loves me, I will, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. <laughs> Continuing to verse 26 to 27. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world do I give to you. How about in John 15, 8 through 10? My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. So to prove to be my disciples, just as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandment and abided in his love. If by verse 1 we see that the master's object of prayer, Father, glorify your name and glorifying your son, then what follows with verses 2 through 5 then shows proof as what he has spoken to the audience. The message is consistent in the same. There is a mutual connection between Christ's glory and the glory of the Father. Now, with the answers that we're looking at today, and as we're segueing to verses 2 to 5, we're going to see how the advancement of Christ's glory is made to what is accomplished, the glory of the Father. Within our confession, both in the shorter and larger catechism, the offices of prophet, priest, and king have questions and answers respectively, and denotes how Christ executes the office. We're going to actually look at that aspect, those three aspects, and look at it in purview of the master's highly priestly prayer within this prologue. Therefore, in examining how Christ, and there's no particular order, but in this order that I put it, it's going to lead to the conclusion. How does Christ fulfill the role of a king? Well then, it is explained that he accomplishes this task, this task through various means. 
It states, in subduing us to himself, he rules and defends us, and he restrains and conquers all our enemies. The larger catechism even expands on more. He calls out a people to himself. He visibly governs them. He gives them officers, laws, and censures, and ruling and having authority over them. He can bestow grace upon his elect. He rewards their obedience. He corrects them when they sin. To continue in bestowing this grace upon his people, he preserves and governs them under all their temptations and sufferings. And while yet, he also restrained and overcome their enemies. To this, the whole world, he powerfully ordains all things to his glory. And whatever transpires is always to the good of the elect. But then, if you're not of the elect, then he takes vengeance on the reprobate, for they do not know God and do not obey his gospel. The master's message is very simple and very simplistic. There is no overshadowing it at all. He is one with the father and the father has given him a task to do. And therefore, in one of these tasks, especially taking the role of a king, he is to rule. And his, with his rule comes great authority. Moses writes in Genesis 49.10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 33.22, The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. David writes in his Psalm 110 verses 1 through 3, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. The Lord will stretch out your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will, free, your people will voluntarily, your people will voluntarily freely end the day of your power. And in a holy array from the womb of dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. And showing harmony from the old to the new. We have Colossians 1, 11-13. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And giving this kingdom, again, he provides officers, laws, and censures. Ephesians 4, 11, 12. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. And Romans 8, 28 reads, God has appointed the church, first apostles, second prophets, third pastors and teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tons for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. For we know God causes all these things, all those things, to work for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Is it any 
understanding and logistics. When he continues in his prayer, he states, you have given him authority over all flesh. And with this authority, there is care for those who are within the church. But then with that authority, he must also rule and rule justly. Second Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. The master's own words concludes in this, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And he, which is God the Father, gave him, which is God the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth and those who did good deeds, a resurrection unto life, and those who committed evil deeds as a resurrection of judgment. I told you, the aspect of heaven, it don't stop there. He moves his plan to completion. So going now, let's examine how he takes to fulfilling the role of being a prophet. It states he accomplishes task by revealing to the church in all ages. That means from the beginning of time and on to the end of time. By his spirit and word, in diverse ways of administration, the whole will of God, not partial, not because we got once one church that started and then we have another church to transition. Jason brought it up well. There is no such thing as Judeo-Christianity. You got to pick a side, people. Pick one. All that in the whole will of God is in all things concerning the edification and salvation of the elect. The writer of Hebrews established this in part by chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir to all things, through whom also he made the world. John, very words, stated, and it's very, again, this detail is very fascinating because this is showing the efficacy of the resurrection. John stated, if you recalled, there were things the disciples did not understand at first. But when Jesus was glorified, they then remembered that these things were written about him. That's the effect of that event.
It shows then, consequently, when Peter, one of the twelve that John is speaking of, he illustrates now the effectiveness of the event and the Holy Spirit as he now articulates in his first letter in chapter 1 by verses 10 to 12. He writes concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings. They look forward to this day. And if someone were to say, well, the Holy Spirit only came to the people, well, Peter's saying here, when the prophets spoke, the Spirit of Christ was in them. This book stamps and shows the role of him as a prophet. It continues. Predicting the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. For in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you, by the Holy Spirit, who's, who's been sent from heaven, things into which angels, angels long to look, you can now see the transition of the effect of the Godhead. People longed. Because when we were in chapter 16, I don't think, I don't know if people understood the gravity of this. People longed to make communication with God on a personal level. And we're going to get to the understanding of why certain people couldn't come in. But the master and his love for his elect, as I've shown you with the difference in the audience, conveyed the oneness he has with the son, is, with the father, is now going to be the oneness you're going to have with him as well. How then, when he says in his prayer, and coming back to it, he says these words, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He just doesn't say words just to say them. He had his whole audience, past, present, and future in mind. When the master refers to himself in third person, it is not anecdotal. He is acknowledging his commission to the office of prophet, for then he humbly admits that the father is the orchestrator of every aspect of his life. And in revealing to the church, past, present, and future, he affirms that his life finds fulfillment in the word. John 4, 41 to 42, many more believe because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said we believe. It's for we have heard it from ourselves that we know that this is indeed the one who is the savior of the world. In the master's own words, what does he have to hide? To show the difference to what he feels about his love for his own people. John 15, 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know 
what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things I heard from my father I have made known to you. So now lastly, we looked at the office of king. We looked at the office of prophet. How then so does he fulfill the office of a priest? We are told in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. He also makes continual intercession for us. The latter catechism adds that it was a sacrifice without spot for the sins of his people. Here, the master in the title of Christ, the mediator, takes ownership and guardianship of the church alike to the priests of the past. In the old, they were called and pulled from the sons of Aaron, from the tribes of Levi, according to Numbers 18, Exodus 8, 28, verse 1, and Numbers 3, 5 through 9. And among their qualifications was that the individuals were called, and this is, note this fascination, they were called to be absent of any physical blemish and defect. Leviticus 21, 17 to 23. Moses writes, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generation who has a blemish may approach to the offer to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near. A man blind or lame or one who has a mutilated face or limp too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand. Hmm. By verse number 20, or a, hatch, a hunchback, or a dwarf, or a man who has a defect in his sight, or an itching disease, or scabs. And this is the very word here, crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron, the priest, who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat of the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holier things, but he shall not go through the veil nor approach the altar because he has a blemish that he may not profane my sanctuaries for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. I'm telling you the reality of the shift that's coming with the resurrection. I hope this becomes more magnified by how great that event actually is. To continue among their duties, which is the Levitical priesthood, they were to teach the law, Leviticus 10.11. They were to offer the sacrifices on behalf of the church, Leviticus 9. They were to maintain and minister to the tabernacle, to the temple. And if you're not, to know, you're not aware of the temple, the holy place, which is the holies of holies. This was a realm within the temple in which a curtain or the parakeet or a veil hung and it separated the holies of holies from the lesser areas in that building the Levitical priesthood also had assistants they were called Levites numbers 18 verse 3 Exodus 37 through 10 
These Levites were also selected by God, 2 Chronicles 29.34. They assisted and helped the priests with their sacrificial offerings and the Old Testament administrative tasks. For example, in Numbers 4 and also chapter 10, verses 17 and 21, the Levites assembled, dismantled, and transported the tabernacle. But then as it compares to the master, all this was a foreshadowing unto what he was to fulfill. For he too was called and his order had to be distinct. And unlike the individuals who bear birth and held their lineage through the tribe of Levi and Aaron, the difference between that priesthood and his is that all of the tribe of Israel in regards to the Levites, and particularly the Levites, they all died. So then what do we make of this priest? If he was to continually make intercession for us, he had to be continually living. And that's the distinction. In his order, he was to be a priest who lives forever. And therefore, he was commissioned that upon his sacrifice, it was necessary that it only had to be done once. Established for him, the name of the order was after the order of Melchizedek. The first iteration of the order we have is in Genesis 14. For by verse 16, after Abram went and fought in the war against the kings, King Melchizedek brings out bread and wine, blessing Abram's victory. Abram notes the blessing into which Melchizedek had for him. But then Moses writes that Melchizedek was also noted as a priest of God the Most High. And his priestlyhood preceded the Levitical priesthood. So a question could be arise. Why didn't the tribe of Levi and the descendants of Aaron succeed under the Melchizedek order? It was because, again, like I stated, they all died. That's the crux of the issue. And if Christ, being God and man, is going to take to the infirmities of man and taste death, this is why it was, there was an emphasis on in that introduction. Upon the resurrection, death could not hold him. And therefore, book-stamping and satisfying the justice of God, the resurrection was a proof to all of us that we are going to taste life. That's why when you lose a loved one, and you consider how they behaved, and you consider the hope that you have in Christ, and they share in that hope too, they look forward to coming back to their bodies. 
not floating in a space in a state of space, not thinking, oh, I don't know what's going to transpire. No. The master said, the father told me what was going to transpire. And because of my love for you, I am telling it to you now. And what's even more beautiful is that in the transition from the old administration onto the new, he's ventured to tell us personally how that change took effect so that we have oneness with the father. And upon, like I said, in this aspect of how he's done his work, and especially in fulfilling the office of being a priest, he had to live forever. David writes in Psalms 110, as we heard from verses 1 to 3, it continues now to verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Note the harmony as Hebrew writes now in the new Hebrews 5, 5 through 6. So also Christ did not glorify himself as to become a high priest, but he, which is God the Father, said to him, which is God the Son, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And just as he said in another passage, you are a priest forever, according to the order of of Melchizedek. If we consider additional crucial details, there also lies in the lineage. Moses was commanded that he was established a priesthood from the tribe of Levi, and though they were those who remained steadfast in their allegiance to God, by example, Exodus 26, uh, which chapter 26 to 28, we can understand why when the ceremonial and portion of the civil law, the Levites were found it to ministrate them over the Old Testament church. But again, the distinction here, Christ did not come from the tribe of Levi. And so in taking on to the promise, God already spoke as to the Messiah coming from a tribe. And the blessing that follows the tribe is very, very noteworthy. Note Jacob's belief and blessing to his sons. He gave various consecrations and notations. But to Judah, he said this. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. In effect, the tribe of Levi and the Levitical priesthood was a copy and shadow to show what was to come in all their practices. But it wasn't the one tribe as to which the salvation of God's people was to come from. The, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews States in chapter 7 by verse 12 to 17. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is then evident that our Lord was descended then from the tribe of Judah. And a connection that the tribe that Moses said nothing about priests. 
This now becomes even more evident because another priest arises and it arises in the likeliness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent but had to have the power of an indestructible life. We do not know that the King Melchizedek came from a mother and father. That's in scripture. So in likelihood, it's understood that King Melchizedek was a pre-incarnation of Christ. And note, when Abraham is in victory, what does he do? He brings him bread and wine. Among the other duties that was within the priesthood, it can also be understood that with Christ being within the order of Melchizedek, he provided, maintained, and ministered. Again, Abram returns from the battle of victorious against the kings, and he receives a blessing from King Melchizedek. And upon King Melchizedek bestowing unto Abram bread and wine and a tenth of the spoils from the war, the master also embraces this transition. For to his elect, in that last supper, he shared with them and blessed the bread and the wine. But then here in this prayer, unlike the tenth of the spoils of war that Abram was given, he states he imparts eternal life. And only a priest who can live forever can do that. It reads the master's own words, as you gave him authority over all flesh to all, to that all whom you've given him, he may give eternal life. Now, the repetition of the sacrifices that the Levitical priesthood undertook came with the understanding that their prayers were heard and the sins of the people and their own will be forgiven. But under the order of Melchizedek, the one sacrifice was made so efficacious that it was needed only once. Hebrews 7, 26-27 For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people because this he did once for all when he was offered up. And making this sacrifice unique, it came with a promise. Mankind has now been reconciled back to God and has satisfied God's divine justice. Colossians 1, 21 to 22 reads, In you, when you were in times past strangers and enemies, because your minds were set in evil works, he is, you have now, he, hath he now reconciled. For in the body of his flesh through death, he has made you holy, unblameable, and without fault in his sight. 
and rendering this unique sacrifice in overcoming the calamity of death through the giving of his own body and resurrection, Christ assured the church, again, past, present, and future, the prayers and supplications of voted his name will be heard. For he lives forever, since the Son of God always possessed the divine majesty Hebrews 5, 7-10, In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications without all crying in tears to the one who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned from obedience from the things which he suffered. <laughs> and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So in concluding this, we've come to verses 4 through 5. And the Master states, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. While Christ had not yet experienced death and the resurrection, he declares that he has glorified the Father on earth and fulfilled his earthly duties assigned to him as Christ the mediator. And now as the work on earth is now coming to a close, the Master shows in his shift in his prayer to seek the glory that God will accompany with the accomplished and completed work when the resurrection is revealed to the whole world. The divine majesty that he once beheld before the world began should now shine forth ever more brightly. And indeed, it shows here Christ is acknowledging, truly, truly, he is the Son of God, for he was with the Father from the beginning. Colossians 1, 119, for it was with it was it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him bodily. Acts 2.38, therefore let, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And as we heard before, and when we began in the prologue of this gospel, John 1, 1 through 3, and, and also by verse 14, and the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The word then became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. If we take into consideration what our master is praying, this prayer has the audience with intent. On earth, he showed how the audience varied. His message did not change. Him and the father were one. But not till he got to his own beloved did he speak on a personal level. And instead of using the word the, he used my. 
And with that personal connection, we too should see this now because the resurrection has gone by and it has passed. But today, unlike the Old Testament Jews, we should not have any fear when we come to him in our prayers. Consider what we've been afforded. Consider at what time and age you've been born. Because I know a lot of individuals in the Old Testament will long look to be in this day. When they could pray personally to God. Let us go to the Lord God in prayer.